You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast. This podcast series was designed to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters. We cover a variety of topics that will help you become more confident and comfortable in the field while hunting deer. On this episode, the guys discuss interesting facts about the white-tailed deer. They talk about their life cycle, when they are born, what they eat, and how long on average they live. They also get into a discussion about their biology and talk about everything from scent glands and how they use them to their antler growing cycle. This is definitely an interesting episode, so sit back and relax. This episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast starts right now. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 14 where we're basically just going to talk about the biology, maybe a little bit about conservation of interesting facts about the whitetail, right? The, the deer um, that we've been talking about throughout this entire series. And I'm just going to kick it off with a topic that I find very interesting and that is the, the life cycle of these animals from fawns to, you know, their, when they're a little bit more mature to their die to when they die, uh, everything in between. And I'm going to kick it off to our, our biologist here, Matt, can you just explain to us a little bit about the, the white tailed deer, its life cycle, what it's eating, how it lives, all that stuff. Sure. Um, they're born in the spring. Um, they're, they're, Lifespan is, uh, on average across the country, um, not very old. I mean, they'll live one to two years, um, maximum age in the wild is probably close to five to, you know, on average five yeah. to six years old deer live older than that deer certainly have been recorded. Um, you can tell the age of a deer in a couple of different ways, but deer have been recorded in their teens. Yep. Um, but that's really rare. You know, the average mature deer buck or doe is probably five or six years old. But on, if you said, what's the average age of all adult deer out there, it's younger than that. Not many are making that, that older age. So 
one to two years old is about what they make. Um, they uh, um, will be rearing uh, since they're uh, born in the spring. Uh, does will will rear fawns throughout the summer. They wean um, and they become part of the adult population after one year of, of age. So um, even in the fall when we're hunting, thinking about this through the hunter's eyes, you're going to be seeing deer of all sizes. Um, you'll be seeing adult bucks, adult does, and fawns that were born that previous spring. Uh, but they grow fast. Uh, we talked about sizing deer in a previous episodes. Um, fawns, even ones that were born six months earlier, seven months earlier, can be almost the size, especially buck fawns, um, can be almost the size of an adult doe. And so you're looking at three kind of varying sizes of deer. They eat uh, different things throughout the year. You asked about that. Uh, during the spring um, and early summer, deer are focusing on plants that are uh, not really that woody, uh, like leaves and the buds and, and the ends of the twigs of, of both woody material and what we call forbs. These are like plants that are, are annual growth. They show up. Uh, every year and have really digestible, easily chewing uh, food. So that's kind of the, the spring and summer. Going into the fall, we talked about this in a previous episode, they start focusing on foods that are really high in fats and sugars. So if there are fruits available, apples, pears, persimmons, or, or nuts, if things are, are dropping, they're still eating some of those green plants. But at that time of year, as Hank mentioned, they start to dry out or senesce and become less attractive to deer. So they're, they're kind of changing their diet in the deer season. And then once winter hits, none of that's available. I mean, some of that stuff may be persistent and stays in the environment. But deer shift to basically a maintenance diet of eating, again, twigs of, of branches, which don't have leaves on it at that point because they've in most parts of the country, they've dropped. Deciduous plants have fallen off. And they're just basically maintaining their 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 uh, weight and trying not to lose as much fat as possible by eating these dead or or live branches off of trees. And then it cycles back into the spring when that first flush of green comes up. Whatever is the first thing available, they'll key in on. And as soon as leaves start showing up, they'll they'll start eating those. Okay, so that's pretty much from start to finish the the life of a deer. Now. There's some other interesting things when it comes to bucks, right? They grow these antlers mm -hmm. and they fall off every year uh, and they go through this crazy breeding cycle. Uh, expand on that for us. Sure. Antlers grow um, and fall off. They're deciduous. They're really interesting uh, parts of the ma mammal uh, world in terms of antlers are growing faster than any other known tissue. Um, they are soft to the touch in the spring um, they start growing and are really driven by sunlight. The amount of hours of sunlight in a day triggers this this hormonal um, cascade in their body that either influences testosterone up or down and tells the deer to start growing antlers. Antlers start growing. They're soft to the touch. They're full of blood. Um, if they cut them or an insect bites them, you might see blood dripping off them, but they grow up to a quarter to a half an inch a day especially at maturity. And then by the end of the summer, as daylight starts to shorten, um, it triggers a release of those hormones that tells the deer's body, stop growing them. It creates a layer between the antler and the skull that cuts that blood supply off and they harden. The velvet actually dries out, peels off. 
Um, they'll try to rub them a little bit to get them off, but they become true bone. They're, they're made of a, a material that is, is much like bone, and they'll hold antlers. They're as rock hard as possible. They will fight with them. They'll rub on trees. They do not pop off. Um, and then amazingly, they grow antlers for uh, a couple reasons to display to, to does. Um, does do pick bucks based on the antler size um, to defend each, uh, you know, each other when they're fighting to, to really just show off. And then at the end of the, the season, when you get to wintertime in the rut, which is we're talking about the breeding season, I'll, I'll mention that here in a second. Um, after that breeding season occurs and the amount of daylight starts to increase again, uh, that triggers, this is usually after the winter or at the end of winter, triggers that layer that was formed between the antlers and the skull to, to just kind of dissolve and the antlers just fall off. So at one point they were so solid that they could fight with them. And in another couple weeks later, a month, couple months later, they just drop off the head and the cycle begins again. Yeah. Um, the, we mentioned the time that they are dropping fawns is in the spring. That's timed. Uh, to maximize survival. They drop fawns at a time of the year when the fawns can grow when all of that lush green vegetation is available. We talked about food availability. Obviously, during the spring and summer is when the most volume of food is available. So they've evolved to drop their fawns at the very beginning of that so that they maximize survival of the fawns. But timing plays a large role in that. They're pregnant for about 200 days, so they need to time when they are breeding 200 days earlier and that's when the breeding season or what we call the rut occurs which is typically in the fall in most parts of the country um, mid november late november some places it might be later some places it might be earlier but that is a timing thing 200 days later is when fawns fall and that breeding season is, is when most deer season occurs uh, because we mentioned vulnerability uh, being able to predict how many deer are going to be taken off the landscape um, and state agencies use that to their advantage, and they set season structures and tag allocations based on the breeding season. Okay. It sounds like this deer life cycle, uh, both breeding and when deer grow their antlers, is all determined by the amount of sunlight within a day. Expand on that. So that's called photo period. Um, we all know that in the middle of summer, um, you can get up early, go to bed late because it's light out a lot longer and that's the angle of the sun not to get into all the tech technological uh, information there but it's amazing that they've evolved to do that that photo period drives many things in the life cycle of a deer including their antler growth and it has to do with um, again hormones but their eyes and how much light they take in um, regulates that in research they've done some really interesting things with deer research where they've regulated and changed the amount of daylight and been able to make deer grow more than one set of antlers in a day. Um, they've been able to change uh, breeding and, and the synchrony of breeding and when that occurs, all based on photo periods. So th that's why we know that. That's crazy. So on top of the, you know, that also tells the does when to come into estrus thus kicking off the breeding correct correct yep. okay so estrus is when they're in heat um that's all based on photo period as well yep there's some other cool uh biological things we've talked about the rubs and we talked about the scrapes right the indicators of how deer um communicate with each other talk about the glands that are on these whitetails and how they do that sure 
Um, deer have up to seven glands that are social, um, scent-producing communication systems um, that that uh, they use. Um, bucks have seven. Does have uh, six. Uh, all deer, male or female, have three on the head, three on the legs, and then male deer have one in between where male deer would have one. Yeah. Um, they have on their head a forehead gland. I'll just start at the top there. And that's more of a collection of glands. And when I say glands, these are oil-producing uh, glands that are at the base of a lot of the hairs in the deer's head. And it just creates this scent and oily substance during a time of the year when they're about to breed or getting ready to breed. And it makes their forehead uh, darken because it stains the, the amount of oil that's coming out. And it creates a scent. And when they leave some of these behaviors that we mentioned in a previous episode, like rubbing a tree, they deposit scent from that. They have a gland at the basically in the tear duct at the corner of their eye, that is also a scent communicator. So when they're making a scrape where they're pawing the ground and they use that licking branch, they're using and depositing a gland um, at, at that point. They have glands on the legs, as I mentioned earlier. Um, they have the tarsal gland. That's a scent communicating gland, um, which is at the back leg, kind of at the corner, which is uh, really their ankle, uh, but it's where the leg turns uh, it makes a quite angle. And you'll see on the insides of that leg, there are these longer fluffs of hair that they will urinate on. And that gets darker as the more they urinate on. And it creates a scent that they're depositing in the scrapes. Then they have one in between their toes. Uh, that is the called the interdigital gland. That's interdigits. So they only have two toes, two-toed animals. And that leaves scent. Uh, sometimes it's scent of, hey, I've been here. Sometimes it's a warning scent. But every time they leave a track, we mentioned before when they're stomping on the ground uh, that they're uh, going to be leaving scent in an alarm. That's a scent-producing gland. Then there's a couple glands that are um, not necessarily, we don't know what they are if they produce scent, but they're there. There's the um, metatarsal gland, which is on the outside of the back of the deer's leg. It's a little circle of white hair. Um, we think that it might have to do with, it's pretty obvious. You'll see this brown leg and it's got this longer white hairs and it's kind of oval shaped. Um, we think it might have to do with thermoregulatory, like almost like it's a thermometer for deer to tell what it is hot or cold. And the reason that I say that is the further North you go or the further South you go, the size and shape of that changes with, uh, latitude on whitetails. Um, but it doesn't produce a scent as far as we can tell. Um, and it, it is different on mule deer. So when they hybridize, you can use the size and shape of that to determine whether it's a mule deer or it's a straight up whitetail or if it's a hybrid. But that's one of those glands that we don't know a lot about, um, whether or not it's a communicating gland or if it's something for other purposes. They also have one in the nose going back to the head. We don't think that's a note that is a uh, scent producing gland, but it's one of the ones on the head that helps lubricate, keep their nose wet and help them uh, be able to smell better. And then on male gland, gland, the one on male deer, again, we think that's a lubrication type of thing during copulation or sex. Okay. Yep. Let me, uh, let me just ask another question. Uh, explain to them like, uh, fawn survival those first few weeks and you know that's a number one question we get from a ton of people but you know how how does it look like the first several weeks of a fawn's life and how does that mother operate because you know we get a lot of phone calls about that sure yeah uh, deer are really interesting animals in that they have evolved to give birth 
to deer that are camouflaged. They have spots on them. Most people are familiar with the spots on fawns that they lose at some point once they become um, about six to eight months old and they get that first winter coat. Um, they've, they've survival strategy for deer, are they give birth and they hide them. They hide their fawns. Um, the, the mother uh, is not with them all the time for the first several weeks, at least four weeks of life where she will, whether she has one or two fawns, um, in many cases, twins are common, the more productive the ground is, she will find the best cover. This is the only time of year that deer are actually territorial is does will find a spot. They don't want anybody else around where they're hiding the deer, um, you know, any other deer around and any other does particularly that are given birth. And her whole goal is on a daily basis is to move that fawn around and hide them. And so she will give birth and within an hour, couple hours of life, really, she's moving that deer from where the birth site is to a place of deep cover, thick, deep cover where it's really hard to see. And so having good habitat on a property will increase the amount of productivity and fawn survival because it's more hiding spots. She'll use vocalizations and basically cast the fawn out and say, you know, and without being too human here, go hide. Um, and the fawn will not, never been there before, but she'll make some vocalizations and the fawn will walk away and uh, lay down and stay as possibly still as possible. Um, she cleans the fawn up as best as possible. She eats a lot of the afterbirth, licks them down. Um, they have a little bit of a scent to them. Some people think that deer don't have that scent, but she doesn't know where the fawn is because she's not walking them to where to hide. And she'll go away and uh, be in another place so that nearby where she can hear or smell uh, in case something happens but she wants to be away from the the fawn so that she doesn't attract something nearby to bring it to the to the fawn and then every couple hours we'll we'll walk nearby where she casts the the fawn out and make another vocalization saying come come eat basically the fawn will come nurse and she'll move it again and she does that every couple of hours moving the fawn around trying to to uh, keep it as hidden as possible and to the point where they're uh, capable of running and escaping danger as easily as she can. It takes several weeks uh, of that, and they grow fast. They, they nurse. They get that colostrum in the beginning and keep nursing, and they start eating solid foods within a few weeks of life and to the point where then she starts following. So uh, really that peak of fawning, depending on where you are in the country, is usually in the spring, early spring, um, when you start seeing fawns mobile and walking around, that's after that period of hiding. Okay. So Hank's asking that question because sometimes people will stumble on deer that they don't find the mother and this fawn's laying there. I guarantee you she's nearby. Yeah. And she is aware that you're standing there. You're not supposed to pick up young animals like that, particularly fawns, because they're hiders in the beginning. And you just leave them be. They're fine. There's a doe nearby. And she knows that you're standing there. Yeah. Yeah. Do deer have many predators? Like, are there other animals out on the landscape that are actively hunting whitetails? It, it varies across the country. Uh, they do have predators. Um, there are animals that are built to try to utilize that resource. Coyotes, 
bobcats, bears are probably the most common ones. In some places, mountain lions where they exist. In some places, wolves where they exist. But primarily, whitetails are the eastern two-thirds of the U.S. where we mentioned. You don't have a lot of wolves in many of that uh, area, and you don't have a lot of mountain lions in a lot of that area. So the main predators where whitetails live anyway um, are those species I mentioned, bears, bobcats, and the biggest is coyotes. Um, many of them prey on deer when they're young. That's when they're utilizing that resource of protein is when they're fawns, which is why deer have evolved to hide and try to hide their fawns. Um, you don't, they do take a, a small percentage of adult deer, but it's not a major way that deer die. Um, in some places, predators can actually deer, keep deer populations from growing too fast because they're removing them when they're young, but they're not a major source of mortality for deer. Expand on that because you said something interested, interesting before we started recording this episode about how if it wasn't for hunters, mm -hmm. there would be a giant overpopulation of deer in this nation. Yep, that, that is a, a major justification of hunting, game species. Um, humans have been around with these animals a lot longer than we had regulated seasons. You know, it's estimated... It's an estimate that there's about 26 to 30 million deer in the United States. Um, thinking back, you know, going back at time of human evolution, um, we can estimate too about how many deer were being removed just from subsistence native populations of humans. They were removing between five and six million deer a year around then because. Uh, they needed it to survive. So we've grown up or have evolved with, with deer. Um, today, we remove about the same amount of deer. Hunters, legal hunters, remove about five to six million deer a year. We keep track of it at the National Deer Association. We're, we do a survey of all states every year and publish it annually called the Deer Report. And you can see what the total harvest is. It's, it's, it's around that. We have, uh, at an all-time peak, we had about 32 to 34 million deer a few years ago. We're a little bit down from that now, but we're about it. But the same amount of deer that we were back then, that number that hunters take is enormous compared to what predators take from for fawns, what cars take, what diseases take. We are humans are the primary source of mortality. So it's not a it's not a, a you know, a trite thing to say, if we did not room, remove deer hunting, if hunting did not exist, deer numbers would climb. And where deer numbers climb, there's massive issues. There are, there are issues. There are issues in the environment. Deer eat about a ton of food every year. Uh, we talked about that in a previous episode. So if every deer is removing that, that plant life, it starts to change what the plant community looks like. And so really next to humans and us developing and putting housing in and, and roads, deer change the environment very quickly if they get out of, out of number, if their population goes up high. And that changes what animals live there. And in places where there are too many deer, and actually that's where hunting is not allowed, um, they see massive degradation of plant communities, changes in animal life, um, increases in invasive species, increases in parasite loads on deer you start seeing more ticks more ant more parasites inside deer because their numbers get out of check where hunting's allowed and it's regulated 
None of that happens. Right. We keep things in check. So hunting is a major part of, of uh, the way we regulate game. And whether if, if you're listening to this, I'm hoping you're interested in maybe uh, becoming a hunter. But it's a ju- not only a justification. We need hunting. It's a way we regulate populations, and it's not new. You know, it's not this thing that we started doing at the turn of the century because we wanted to hunt. Humans have killed deer and used them for eons, and we're just continuing that in a regulated fashion. Yeah. And it's also a major part of the conservation model. Yeah, which is a perfect transition into what I was going to talk to Hank about because you, as hunters, we also – hear the word conservation and we hear that hunters are conservationists why don't you expand on that a little bit well let's just start off from the the 40,000 foot view you know white-tailed deer are the number one big game species in the world they have the largest number and the largest range of any large uh, game species so I mean deer are the ticket and in the United States today 80% of all hunters are deer hunters and they're they're um, bringing in about 60% of the revenue um, of the hunting industry. And, and so from a, a very high level, um, you know, we didn't manage our game species in this country as well as we could have. And around the turn of the 20th century, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, really sportsmen and, and women realized that there had to be a better way that we were we were you know you know in many cases we exterminated many of the big game species in this country in the eastern u.s we had bison we had elk they never really filled in their um, historic ranges again they're only found on very small percentages white tails are kind of that weird species that we've talked about they can survive in this fringe adaptable yeah they've done really well and and there may be more whitetails in the u.s today than there were um you know in in 1500 when the european colonials showed up so um you know whitetails are this like keynote or or species and so um these these conservationist sportsmen got together and you know during the great depression passed a lot of laws that um are kind of shocking thinking back i mean they they told landowners that you didn't own the game anymore and you couldn't shoot them out of season and you were going to get taxed you were going to have to buy a license that we the people were going to entrust this resource as a public trust and you got a lot of our public lands and national wildlife refuges and and they also set up state agencies to regulate the game and the habitat within these states and set laws and and licensing and so um this this hunting and this revenue of people buying license and they also instituted taxation on um, firearms and ammunition and things that we use a field and um, that goes to the federal government as, as a as a revenue source that's then allotted back to the states um, based on the square mileage of the land size of the state and how many hunting licenses they sell as a state so it's this whole system and that you know there's tenants and and we probably won't get into it but it's affectionately known as the north american model of conservation Uh, A lot of us take it for granted because we grew up in it. It's what we're used to. But I promise you, if you travel outside the U.S., you'll realize that a lot of countries don't have these wildlife populations and great habitat that we get to experience and are fortunate to have in this country. But it's, it's, in a lot of cases, has been paid for and managed by hunters. These state agencies manage 
both the game species, but also they're responsible for the non-game species. And the act of hunting and, and this revenue in turn pays for the state agency. Almost 100% of the funding of the state agencies comes from license revenue of hunting and fishing. And, um, and then the federal act excise tax comes down and adds more to that. But um, you know, hunting has funded a lot of the conservation in this country. And, and deer being the primary species that people hunt, deer hunting drives a lot of that model. So uh, one of the fears from a conservation standpoint is we are seeing declines in numbers of hunters and that is threatening that model. And we would like to see more people hunting. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in, in uh, maybe taking it up, that's great. We, we need you, but we need your friends too. Yeah. Um, if you have buddies or family members that have an interest, um, we all have a responsibility of introducing new hunters because hunters pay for this. We pay for conservation. We pay for states to be able to manage not only the species we're pursuing, but also the animals that are, that are not game species. That's where their funding comes from. And so we applaud you and kudos for, for uh, listening through all of these episodes to become a hunter. But there's a challenge to you too. introduce somebody. Yeah. And I think just because you buy a license, um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about other opportunities to spread conservation or to, to share passions or, or there's, there's, there's so many other things I I feel like these days, uh, there's a group of, there's people out there who think that just because you buy a tag or a license makes you, uh, a conservationist or uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of research if you're new that you can do, but there are opportunities, Hank, and elaborate on this to give back to, uh, the, the natural resource that we take away from in hunting. Sure. I mean, one of the most obvious examples, the National Deer Association is a national conservation nonprofit that specializes in deer. By, by joining or becoming a member, uh, you support our mission, and then we try to use all those dollars um, to their best use to, for the resource. Um, but, you know, there's, there's other conservation organizations, whether they be, um, you know, species-specific or generalist or... Um, you know, there's there's organizations that focus on public land and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of different opportunities, and they're also great places to find other hunters and, and find that community that is important. You know, Matt talks about inviting friends, but building that community around you is what makes hunting fun. Yeah. Um, but there's all kinds of other opportunities. Um, on know, a national and on a local level. Yeah, yeah. local, state, federal, and worldwide. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to find out more information and utilize additional resources, visit DeerAssociation.com slash Hunting 101. There you will find links to the YouTube series, Guide to Successful Deer Hunting ebook, New Hunter Sign-Up Sheets, and Deer Hunting 101 courses. Additionally, you can listen to more outdoor-themed podcasts at SportsmansNation.com on iTunes or anywhere you download your podcasts.